Tiny Brothers Coffee is committed to organics and fair trade, recycling, friendly and relaxing shops, and a great cup of coffee. Now featuring coffees roasted in our headquarters and coffee roastery in Louisville's Portland neighborhood. If you're outside of Louisville, you can get coffee shipped to your door by ordering online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. Heine Brothers Coffee, Louisville's neighborhood gathering place since 1994. Hey everybody, just real quick. The Past and the Curious Patreon account is up and running, and you can give us some money. And if you want to, and you do, we might shout your name at the end of the episode. Stay tuned on this episode to hear some names yelled. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 8 of The Past and the Curious. This episode is called Magic. But you'll notice that there's a question mark on there, so maybe it's more like magic or magic or even magic, whichever one you choose to go with. Um, the point is, is that the stories that you're going to hear are true stories from the past where people appeared to be using magic, uh, and that's important to, to realize. There's just the appearance. First, you're going to hear a story from uh, Heather Funk, who is our first guest author. This is the first person who's written one of the stories besides myself. Uh, and she's going to read it as well. And it is about uh, Anton Mesmer and a couple sisters named the Fox Sisters. It's a really great story. After that, Victoria Reibel will tell you the story of Jean-Eugene Robert Houdin. And that wasn't enough after that. We've got a live performance uh, that I put together with my friends Tori Fisher and Brandon Johnson, and we will be performing I'll See You in My Dreams. But first, here's Heather. One of the ways people are remembered throughout history is when their name actually becomes a word. Take Leonhard Fuchs, for example. He was a botanist. That's somebody who studies plants. Mr. Fuchs discovered a flower that bloomed in a beautiful shade of purpley pink that you might know as fuchsia. Likewise, the daring young man of the flying trapeze is now more commonly associated with his costume than his acrobatics. Jules Leotard inspired and thrilled audiences throughout the mid-1800s with the stunts he performed in his snug gym wear. We call these words that come from people's names eponyms. It wasn't Franz Mesmer's goal to become an eponym. It was his goal to change the world with a new way to heal. In the 1770s, when the Austrian physician first began claiming that he could heal people using a force that came from his body, he referred to it as animal magnetism, not mesmerism. And to a degree, it was magnetic. One of his early treatments involved having a patient swallow an iron pill. Once it was inside, the heavy metal would be manipulated with strong magnets from outside the patient's body. But as much as Mesmer tried to get people to believe in his medical theories, his breakthrough in magnets and medicine was never taken very seriously. But understand that in the 1770s, people were really excited to learn everything they could about the world, and it seemed like they were interested in any science they could get their hands on. Some of these sciences still exist today, like astronomy and chemistry, but some sciences, like Mesmer's ideas or even astrology and alchemy, could not be proven 
and these are things that we refer to today as pseudosciences. Mesmer's theories would never be proven, but that didn't stop him from trying. And he didn't shy away from big opportunities. The stakes were very high when the daughter of the Imperial Secretary of Commerce and Court Counselor to the Empress, basically a very fancy family, was brought before him. Her name was Maria Theresa Paradis, and she had been named after her dad's boss, the Empress of Austria. Maria Theresa Paradis was only two, and she had lost her eyesight. Her family was desperate to help her, and because of their position, they could afford more experimental treatments. They brought her to Franz Mesmer, who attempted to heal her with his magnets, and nothing happened. Well, actually, things got better for a little while, but then as soon as she stopped seeing Mesmer, her sight left her again. The Paradis family was incredibly upset, and considering how powerful they were, they were the wrong people to have mad at you. Mesmer was forced to run away to Paris. His strange legacy lived on after he was gone. People shared his theories until they became combined with other theories. One of these people was the writer Emanuel Swedenborg, who was interested in what happens after you die. You mix his beliefs with Franz Mesmer's thoughts on animal magnetism, and it seems like you'd get one strange party. Well, actually, you do. Fast forward to Hydesville, New York, almost 100 years later. Little towns like this one on the Erie Canal get very cold in the winter, and thanks to the Great Lakes' effect on the weather, they're often buried in snow. There are plenty of opportunities for an 11-year-old and 15-year-old girl to have fun, but it can still get boring and lonely. When photography has yet to catch on, let alone Netflix, which is 150 years into the future, what are you supposed to do when you're snowbound? If you answered play tricks on your parents, then you are exactly right. Katie and Maggie Fox decided the best way to amuse themselves was by convincing their mom that a ghost was in their house. First, they tied apples to strings and thump, thump, thump the fruit down the stairs to make it sound like a ghost was walking on the first floor. Their mom bought it. She was quickly convinced that their farmhouse was haunted. But the girls weren't satisfied with a ghost that would just walk. Next, they found the trick that would make them famous. They learned that cracking their joints sounded exactly like someone knocking. In the long, silent winter nights, they would pop their fingers and toes. It sounded mysterious and scary to their mom. Now, please take note, if your knuckles are loud enough to sound like knocking, it's probably not good for your joints. Their dad, meanwhile, was skeptical. It would take more to convince him. Oh, that's just the house settling from the cold, he'd say. The girls didn't mind his disbelief. They had a grand finale planned. They were going to make the ghost prove itself by answering questions. One night, Katie and Maggie got their mom's attention in the middle of the night by making their spooky popping sounds. Poor Mrs. Fox got up, lit a candle, and went into the girls' room to see if they'd heard the same thing she had. Not only had they heard, they said, they knew exactly what the sound was. They told her it was the ghost of a man that they'd befriended. And when you know someone, you need something to call them by. Mr. Splitfoot, Katie said, calling out the name that she and Maggie had made up for their ghost friend. Do as I do. With that, she snapped her fingers three times. Three mysterious knocks followed. I don't believe you, Mrs. Fox said. She was frightened out of her mind. Katie told her to try it for herself. Mr. Splitfoot, count to ten, Mrs. Fox said. From nowhere it came. Knock, 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 knock 
all the way up to 10. Mrs. Fox was amazed. Not only did they have a ghost in the house, but she believed they had a ghost that could communicate with them. He could answer questions. How amazing was that? If you're real, she uttered to the would-be ghost, you need to communicate with our neighbors and friends. With a bit of hesitation, Mr. Splitfoot knocked his agreement. We wonder at this point if the girls might have gone too far. Katie and Maggie convinced their poor mother that the ghost was only comfortable around them. They had special powers, the girls said. Soon enough, their friends and neighbors came to see what was going on in the haunted fox farmhouse, first one by one and then in larger groups. Eventually, word got to a man who wrote an article about the sisters, titled, A Report of the Mysterious Noises Heard in the House of John D. Fox in Hydesville, Arcadia, Wayne County. People weren't quite as into punchy titles back then. Suddenly, the girls were sort of famous. Their timing was just right. Lots of books were coming out based on the ideas Swedenborg and Mesmer had about the spirit world, books about a new philosophy called spiritualism. People saw the Fox Girls as proof of the theories that these writers were talking about. Katie and Maggie, along with their older sister Leah, took their act on the road. People from all around wanted to see the sisters who would communicate with spirits. First, the girls filled an auditorium in Rochester, the closest city to their small hometown. Then they made their way down the Erie Canal to Albany and Troy, New York. They earned a nickname for themselves, the Rochester Rappers. Not those kind of rappers. The name came from the knocking or rapping that their ghosts appeared to use to communicate. Next up, they made it to New York City, which was just as big back then as it is now. You know what they say, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But the Fox Girls weren't just famous in their little corner of New York State. People were writing about them from as far away as California. Mesmer and Swedenborg had the ideas, and the Foxes seemed to have the proof. Immediately, spiritualism flooded people's homes, where across the country, people had parties known as seances to try to communicate with ghosts. Even the Queen of England gave seances a try. Now believe what you want to, but the most successful people who communicated with these ghosts, people who called themselves mediums, were usually playing tricks only a little more sophisticated than popping your knuckles. Sometimes mediums had to go into a trance, or at least appear to, and when they did that, they were said to be, get this, mesmerized. One thing we can learn about this is that when times are changing, people look for answers. Franz Mesmer lived at the time of the French Revolution, and the Fox sisters lived during another kind of revolution, the Industrial Revolution. Cities were growing bigger, and people were leaving farms, and everyone was thinking about how they were supposed to all get along when their way of life was changing so much. Women hadn't been allowed to do things like vote or have their own businesses, and they were starting to get these rights. These ghosts from the spirit world didn't seem to care about whether you were a big, important person in this world the way most people did. In fact, out of all the people the spirits could have chosen, the foxes made people believe that the spirits specifically chose them, a few young girls, to share their message. And that's a really good lesson to take away from the spirits of spiritualism, whether they're real or not. All you need to do is make your voice heard. It doesn't matter if you're 11, 15, or 100 years old. If you find the right way to say something, people will listen. 
And though their names may not have become eponyms like Old Man Mesmer, Katie, Maggie, and Leah did find a way to outfox quite a few people all over the country. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Uh, it's quiz time again. Just kidding. This is a quiz about magic. So, question number one. Do you know which famous magician had a brother who was also his stage rival? Well, Harry Houdini and his brother Hardeen were competing magicians, or so the audience thought. They were actually very close and on great terms. Houdini actually helped Hardeen build his career. But they realized it might be good for business if they created a rivalry between their two acts. Hardin inherited all of Houdini's possessions upon his death on Halloween in 1926. Now you may also want to make note of the fact that Harry Houdini, whose real name was Eric Weiss, named himself after an idol, Jean-Eugene Robert Houdin, the man from the next story that you're going to hear. But before that... Question number two. Do you know which incredibly famous British novelist gave magic performances as the magician Rhea Rama Roos in the 1800s? The author of A Christmas Carol, A Tale of Two Cities, Oliver Twist, and more, Charles Dickens was also quite an accomplished magician. Among his notable tricks were one where he cooked a hot plum pudding in an audience member's top hat, and another where he transported a woman's pocket watch from her purse into the center of a loaf of bread. Not bad for an author, an amateur magician. Your third and final, and my favorite question. The British magician John Neil Maskelyne invented what coin-operated device in the late 1800s. As far back as ancient Rome, there is record of people charging for the use of toilets. But this often involved a living, breathing attendant collecting the money in the restroom. Kind of a gross job. But the famous magician John Neil Maskelyne invented a coin-operated toilet that wound up being installed throughout Europe bathroom goers would pay a penny to use the facility. Now, today, when I need to go, I may say something like, I need to use the restroom, or perhaps something more colorful. Under these same circumstances, it's common in England to say that you need to spend a penny. The next time nature calls, we encourage you to try saying that you need to spend a penny. You know how they say a magician should never tell his or her secrets? Well, one French magician had a job to do for his government, and part of the job meant revealing a few of the secrets behind his tricks. It was difficult to refuse a request from President Napoleon III, and when the request came to Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, he was hesitant. 
In his mind, he had retired from performing magic and was more than happy to spend his remaining years of writing, inventing, and experimenting with his ideas on electricity. It was very important work, he believed. To the people of his native France, he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, magician of his age. In fact, years later, he would be remembered as the founder of modern conjuring. But sitting where he was in 1856, he was certain his days of magic were behind him. He'd be rusty, and it would take quite a bit of work if he were to say yes to Napoleon III's request. Napoleon III, nephew of Napoleon I, had a mess on his hands. France had colonized the country of Algeria, which is at the very northern tip of the African continent. As the crow flies, Algeria was not far at all from France, just a few hundred miles to the south across the sea. The country was populated by many types of people, but one group, called the Marabou, were presenting some trouble for Napoleon III. The Marabou were spiritual leaders, and they were desperate to incite the native tribes into a riot against the French. It was their belief that France had no right to be in Algeria, nor to shape the culture of the natives. They had a point, if you really think about it. Still, not all the natives were feeling the same way, so the Marabou set out to convince them. These men began to perform magic tricks and false miracles for the natives in the hopes that they would be seen not as humans, but as something stronger and more powerful. It worked. By walking on hot coals, appearing to eat glass, and charming poisonous snakes, many of the people of Algeria believed them to be superhuman and were willing to follow them in. As a result, the marabou were dangerously close to achieving their goal, leading a large revolt against the French. And this is why Napoleon III needed Robert Houdin's help. He intended to fight magic with magic. Many years before, when he was a young man in the early 1800s, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin was studying to be a watchmaker and repairman. His father had been a watchmaker before him, and he knew all too well how complicated a craft it was. All sorts of makers from all sorts of places had different approaches, and to be a respected craftsman, Houdin would need to understand them all. So one day, the young man visited a bookseller with the intent of buying a pair of books illustrating all those various complicated mechanics behind watches and clocks. And this he did, or at least he thought so. Upon returning home and unwrapping his purchases, he found the bookseller had mixed up some of the packages. What Robert Houdin brought home instead were two volumes about performing illusions of magic. But he would not return the books to the bookseller. In fact, before long, because of the curiosity the books created in his mind, he became quite obsessed with the idea of performing magic, traveling across France to see performances, and then staying afterwards to learn from the performers. All the while, he supported himself with his watchmaking and repair business, but he dreamed of a career in magic. Years later, he built something called a riding automaton, which he displayed at the 1844 Universal Exposition, an early World's Fair. This device, highly technical and accurate, no doubt a result of his watchmaking genius, was a machine that was mechanically programmed to hold a pen and write an entire poem, free from the intervention of human hand. American showman P.T. Barnum was so impressed that he bought it, and Robert Houdin was able to use the profit to build a career focused on magic and inventing. For over a decade, Robert Houdin thrilled audiences with his unique brand of prestidigitation, which is a fancy word for sleight of hand. He was known to tour the country, but later he bought his own theater and people traveled to him in order to experience his legendary performances. Among his popular tricks were one where he appeared to make his sleeping son levitate or float above the ground, 
and another one, still done by magicians today, called the Marvelous Orange Tree. In this trick, he would begin by borrowing a handkerchief from a woman in the audience. Returning to the stage, he had a table set with an egg, a lemon, an orange, and a small, blossomless tree. Before the eyes of the audience, he appeared to stuff the handkerchief into the egg without breaking the shell. Next, somehow he got the egg inside the unpeeled lemon. And then, you guessed it, the lemon inside of the unpeeled orange. Next, with a wave of his hand, the orange disappeared, leaving nothing but a powder. The fruit and handkerchief were nowhere to be seen. He lit the powder on fire and held the flames near the tree. Before long, and much to the amazement of the crowd, the tree began to blossom and bear oranges right before their very eyes. To prove that it was real, Robert Houdin picked a few of these oranges from the tree and threw them into the audience. Spectators peeled the fruit and bit in, verifying for everyone else that the oranges were as real as the clothes on their backs. But then Robert Houdin plucked one final orange from the tree and placed it on the table. When he struck it with his wand, the orange split into four pieces, revealing inside the original handkerchief borrowed from the woman in the crowd. You can imagine people were quite impressed with this feat. But his magic career was really something of the past when he said yes to Napoleon III and set foot on the African continent with the goal of stopping a revolution. Disguised in the traditional dress of the region, he traveled until he found the men who were performing their own magic tricks to influence the natives of the area. A large group was gathered, and Robert Houdin began a magic performance of his own. He started slowly, by most accounts, warming up and winning the audience by pulling some things out of hats and the like, you know, the usual magician bits. But when he spotted a man who appeared to be the biggest and strongest in the crowd, he invited the man to the stage. The man also happened to be one of the marabou, the spiritual leaders trying to incite a riot by scaring people with fake magic. Robert Houdin knew this. Robert Houdin motioned to a metal box on the ground with handles on either side. Addressing both the audience and the man, he instructed the big man to lift the box from the ground. The man did so with little effort. The crowd was confused. Robert Houdin smiled contently and did not show a hint of nervousness. Instead, he then explained that he was simply going to remove all the men's strength and that he would not be able to lift the metal box a second time. This got the audience's attention, and in silence, they watched the man prepare his body for the feat, finally bending over and placing his hands around the handles. But this time, the box would not budge. He strained and struggled, muscles bulged, his face contorted, his scream rang through the tent. But try as he might, he could not lift the box even a fraction of an inch from the ground. The man left the stage embarrassed and confused. The magician from France had gotten the better of him. It looked like some amazing magic. In reality, though, the night before, Robert Houdin had buried a large and powerful electromagnet in the ground beneath the box. When turned off, the box felt normal. But when the electromagnet was on, it created a pool so strong that no man could lift the box from its spot and it was the same story as he traveled to other locations in the region. At another stop, he amazed locals with one of his most notable tricks. Producing a lead ball, the sort that would be fired from a musket or a flintlock pistol, he passed it around to prove it was real. Once everyone was satisfied the bullet was real, he made a permanent mark on the surface so it could be identified later, and he could prove that he hadn't switched bullets. Next, it was dropped down the barrel and loaded into a pistol. 
Then he chose a steely nerd volunteer from the audience who was willing to point the gun at him and pull the trigger. And this is exactly what happened. The crowd gasped at the bang when the pistol fired and smoked. Immediately, Robert Houdin doubled over and grasped at his stomach, his face twisted in a grimace. The crowd was stunned. Had the magician failed in his trick? Had he allowed a stranger to shoot him straight in the stomach? Before long, Robert was dramatically trying to straighten his body, grimacing in what appeared to be a great deal of pain. Slowly, the people's attention moved to his face. He seemed to be in the middle of dry heaves. And then he straightened up, showing his teeth. In between was the bullet. To the crowd, it appears that after he was shot, he contorted his body and worked his muscles to bring the foreign object from the wound up his throat and into his mouth. To prove it was the bullet, he showed everyone. The markings were there. Again, there was an explanation. This trick used Robert Houdin's developed skills at prestidigitation along with a healthy dose of acting. Because of how dexterous he was with his hands, he was able to switch the bullets loaded in the barrel of the pistol right before everyone's eyes, most likely through some form of distraction. The bullet that was actually fired from the gun was just a very thin shell filled with some red liquid. So when it made impact on his body, it couldn't penetrate. Instead, it exploded with fake blood and fed the illusion that he was indeed wounded. While doubling over, pretending to be in pain and working the bullet up his throat, he simply placed the real marked bullet into his mouth before anyone could notice. By the time he left Algeria, he had won the admiration of nearly all who saw him perform. And what is more, these observers were eventually told how he did his tricks. He had proven that his abilities were greater than the marabou men performing magic of their own. But the people were assured that Robert Houdin wasn't really magic. He wasn't bestowed with otherworldly nor superhuman powers. He was an amazing illusionist, but he was human. And so this was proof that the men trying to incite riots against the French were normal humans as well. His mission was viewed as a success, and the native tribes of Algeria agreed not to riot, largely because a magician told them how he did his tricks. And here come my good friends, Tori Fisher, singing, and Brandon Johnson, playing tuba. They're going to perform with me, I'll See You in My Dreams, a song from way back in 1924. I'll see you in my dreams Hold you in my dreams Someone took you right out of my arms Still I feel the thrill of your charms Lips that once were mine Tender eyes that shine They will light my way tonight I'll see you in my Tender eyes that shine 
thing of the day and here it is people i'm gonna yell your name i've got three names to yell because they gave five dollars or more to patreon per month jenny c jenny jody l yeah jody and charlie b thanks charlie thank you all so much everyone else go find our patreon page it's on our website thepastandthecurious.com you can follow us at facebook twitter instagram I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. And listen to our Kids Listen members. Uh, We have a special episode coming out probably just in like two days. And it's about um, family trees. We're having sweeps week or sweeps month for for Kids Listen. So uh, check that out. We'll have a short interview with a genealogist. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.